Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I'm really excited to introduce you all to Greg Garemlian on the Philosophy Podcast. Greg is one of the, if not the greatest face-off man of all time, just recently retired from the Long Island Lizards, but will soon be facing off in the new PLL. Uh, Greg has had recorded some of the greatest seasons of all time. And really, Greg, the one that stuck out to me that blows my mind is that you were 73.1% in the MLL in 2015, won the MVP and won the championship. Uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Really fired up to talk to you about face-offs, business, strength, and conditioning, the best of all time and beyond. Thanks a lot. I'm, I'm really pumped to talk to you about this stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So, um, all right. Um, really quick, let's talk about some of your, you know, some of the greatest seasons. I went back and started doing my homework on you and looking at it. That, that 2015 season was, you know, probably is probably one of those seasons that even you look back and say, gosh, how did I do that? Right. Um, talk a little bit about what was so special about that year and, and some of the great matchups you had. Um, I think when you look back at when the FOA started in like 2012, 2013, um, at that point, it was kind of a dark age for faceoffs. Uh, the cheating had completely run rampant. Uh, I know every day people were talking about getting rid of it. And um, when the FOA started, our big thing was like, let's try to cut the cheating out. Uh, our instruction was purely based on anti-cheating. We worked alongside uh, U.S. Lacrosse to really try to harness uh, officiating, get the, make it more black and white. The NCAA was a huge catalyst. The, the rules committee came in, changed the rules, was harsher about guys being off plastic, off the line. And the MLL had followed kind of the FIL face-off rules, which is kind of just a calamity uh, for a long time. And then in 2015, uh, after a lot of debate, the MLL decided to go closer to the college rules. So we came in 2015, and we came in a training camp, and the league sent out a memo saying, we're going to go completely off the line off the plastic, straight up and down. Um, <clears throat> so I was elated with that news because that's what I was teaching every single day. So that was easy for me. Um, a lot of guys who I've been playing against for in the league or whatever reasons uh, did not like that, um, and it showed immediately. So in that season, I was going against – same guys I've been going against for years, uh, but the rules were a big ch change for them. And for me, it was not. So uh, the proof was in the pudding right away that it was kind of ridiculous at certain points. Guys who I've had battles with in the past, um, I was going, you know, 20 for 22 against. And um, I remember I was helping Coach Myers with the U19 team at the time, and uh, he introduced me to a group of young guys, and he said, what's your percentage right now in the league? And at that particular point, it was at 80%. Uh, <laughs> saying it out loud was kind of insane. Um, but is. it was great. Uh, it was kind of this weird hybrid year where – they kept the rules off the line, kept us straight up and down. But at the same point, I was allowed to keep the ball in the back of my stick. So it was like, you know, they blew the whistle, drove into the ball, and then just running backed it out every time. Um, so it was kind of built for me that year. Wow. And so um, your business model was the best instruction possible. And let's not, let's not foster the idea that cheating is the way to be a great face-off man. And as the rules have changed along you know it followed beautifully with your business model because all of a sudden you know without the ability to cheat skill and quickness uh take over and all of a sudden you're seeing um record setting numbers uh even last year at the division one level correct yeah and, and i think that's when 2015 for me was insane 2016 there was a whole turnover probably the third generation of guys that i've played against in the ml came in uh, that were all rookies or first-year guys who have played the college rules. So then it equalized a little bit more. You know, my, my records, my, uh, my percentages were still high, but they dipped a little bit because I'm going against guys who are more prepared for that. 
Right. Uh, so, you know, and guys that were 10 years younger than me. Uh, so, you know, it, it helped. And I think people last year were like, oh, TD is, you know, he's 79%, Trevor's 74%. Like this, you know, this isn't fair. And you're like, dude, give it a couple of years. We're, I'm coaching a thousand kids a year. You know, right. like there's going to be face-off guys that are going to be able to compete. And those numbers will even out eventually because the instruction is there. You just need to give these guys a couple of years to be used to the rules. And you need to give the officials a couple of years to get used to the rules. When we change them every two years, it's really tough on the officials to stay, stay in the, you know, stay at pace. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's funny. I mean, years ago, maybe four or five years ago, when I used to talk to my good friend, Andy Towers, uh, who's uh, one of the all time great face-off guys. He, he said that if you want a fair face-off, you got to put the sticks down first and the ball down second. And right. fair enough. I mean, I'm sure that was uh, uh, something that you had thought a lot about too. Um, and we're going to get into the new PLL and the new rules and the face-offs later in the show here. But um, it's really, really fascinating stuff. I the Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. I'd like to talk now a little bit, just have you give us a rundown on your journey. I mean, I remember watching you when I was coaching at Denver. I remember watching this lanky athletic kid midfielder with the with the with the yellow helmet from Springfield High School I think and um and then I remember you going to Penn State Lars Tiffany who was the assistant at the time was a great is is still a great friend of mine we were teammates together and so I I I've sort of followed you from afar but I'd love to hear and, and I think the listeners would love to hear a little bit about your journey and how you came to be who you are yeah it's funny I, I gave a uh, a motivational talk at Rye High School last year right before their season started and I kind of touched on my journey. And when I started playing lacrosse my freshman year of high school, I started playing because that was the cool sport in my school. And everybody wanted to play lacrosse. If you wore those lacrosse shorts at school, you were a cool kid. Um, but it was incredibly frustrating, especially if you're a natural athlete. The idea of getting out there and your natural ability being completely correlated to your stick skill. Yeah. Um, you can't fake being good at lacrosse. So um, that's what was frustrating about the sport. And I'm being made fun of by kids that were, have been playing since they were six. So, you know, it was incredibly infuriating. I almost quit after the first year because I couldn't take it. Um, but the face-off was a natural thing. Chris Britton is a legend at Springfield High School as a face-off guy. He's actually the varsity football coach now, and he's killing it as a varsity football coach. But he taught me the ins and outs of face-offs, just, you know, standing neutral grip, um, just because I wanted to see what it was because I was a wrestler. So the ball being on the ground, not having to catch it first, uh, something that I could at least try. And I was kind of a natural at it. Um, And then as my stick skills caught up, um, I started playing varsity uh, my sophomore year. And then I got my first shot at facing off for the varsity my junior year when our starting guy went down. Uh, Jack Noonan was on LSM that ended up playing at Penn. And uh, I got thrown into the game and had a good game. And then I just took off from there. And I ended up playing, you know, offensive midi. And like you said, when you saw me uh, getting recruited at 205, like I wasn't a face-off guy. I yeah. faced off, but yeah. I was an all-around midi. And Coach Calhoun, who was the Butler head coach at the time, was my 205 coach. And he was like, anytime we have a clear, I just want Grenlin to grab it, run on the field, get it, and just juke everybody and get down on the field. Um, and I think that's really why I got recruited. Because coaches, you know, I remember Tony Seaman saying, at the uh, during the all-star game he's like I was on the sideline I heard you I saw you deck somebody and literally grunt like you're a linebacker <laughs> he's like and I immediately wrote your name down um so you know that's where I think I turned people on as far as recruiting goes and my whole family went to Penn State so I looked at other schools but it would have taken a lot to tear me from Penn State um and like you said I was kind of lanky I was relatively strong but I was I, I was a 170 kid when I got to college I remember and I remember you know, I think back to those days of 205 and just like, you know, at the time you don't realize that that was like a really neat time. It was, it was like actually all the best players went to one camp and yeah. there were a few sessions of it. And then, yeah. you know, like anything else, it, it became watered down and business grew and, you know, new things have evolved and it's all good. But, but uh, I do remember back to those early days at Loyola College, um, you know, with the 205 camp where you'd actually have team practices and skills. Yeah and testing and 
it was like you were coached by Division One guys, and all the teams had Division One coaches. You know, and you had to go work the camp to be able to get the booklet. Even if yeah, you- and then they had college night. So yeah. Yeah. you would go and you'd go to college night and you would talk to all the coaches and you'd get yeah. a good sense of what you liked. And I just remember being in high school. It's like if you made the all-star game at 205 or champ camp, you were going to college. Like that's just what everybody knew. So, yeah, it was kind of crazy because it was a more condensed world. Now you got guys coming out of Utah or, or Las Vegas that are, you know, elite-level athletes. So that's what's cool about the sport now. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I got, we got to Penn state at 170. They put me on 10,000 calories a day. The nutritionist, Chris Clark, full-time job. I gained about 40 pounds at Penn state. Wow. Um, and I become, I became very close with my mentor, Brad Pantall, who was our strength coach. And, uh, I chose my major based on that kinesiology and then played at Penn state evolved into a face-off guy, but still played man up. So I was a man up guy and a face and a face-off guy, which was the greatest gig wow. in school. Um, very rare. Yeah, very rare, right? Back when you could use a head and, and actually play in the field with it, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when I got, to, I got drafted as a face-off guy, that was when I became, you know, quote-unquote, a FOGO was in the MLL. I had never done that before. So, um, you know, that was my journey. But, you know, I remember watching – we talked about it before. I remember watching Andy Towers' instructional video. Coach yeah. Lars gave it to me right away. Yeah. Uh, Chris Searcy was the first yeah. face-off guy I ever noticed. Canabine was my absolute idol. Um, and then when I got hurt in 2011 was the first time I sat down and looked at this position and decided to look at it from a biomechanical perspective. So when you look at my stance and everything I did after I got hurt in 2011 to 2012, everything was different. And that's when I took off of my stats. Wow. Amazing. So um, when did you decide, when did you go from traditional stand up to uh, one knee? Was that in 2011? So Lars left my junior year and became the head coach at Stony Brook. And they had this face-off guy um, who, after a couple of games, I was watching film on him. We were playing him, like, the third game of the year or something. And I was watching the film on him, and I'm like, this kid, that was the year they took the set call out. Or that was the year before they took the set call out. Um, and I was watching film on him, and I'm like, I think he's grabbing the ball with his hand, but I can't tell. So we go out and we play Stony Brook on the road. And I'm playing this kid, and I started off hot my junior year. Um, and – he was killing me and he was grabbing the ball with his hand on every single play. And I literally had a mental breakdown over it. Was it again? I'm not going to throw the kid's name under the bus. What team was it? Uh Uh-huh. Which team? Stony Brook. Stony Brook. Okay. So the next year I watched film on him the entire off season and that my senior year, they took the set call out. So what I noticed was as a stand-up neutral grip guy, officials were kind of, waiting for your gloves to hit the ground and then blowing the whistle, which was putting me at a little bit of a disadvantage because if you're on a knee, you just put your hands on the ground and go. Yeah. So what I decided to do was I was like, I'm going to go against this kid. I'm going to tell the officials the entire pregame. This kid's going to grab all his hands and I'm going to give them two face-offs. And after the first two face-offs, they weren't calling it. He went two and two. So I went on a knee and literally the third face-off, I pinned his gloves to the ground, and I just held them there till they called me for withholding. And I, was, and I started yelling at him, like, I'm going to break your wrists. <laughs> and, and then the next face-off out there, I just went – this was the first time I've ever tried it on a knee. I just started going power clamps on, with both hands. And between the reps calling him, him being afraid of me breaking his wrists, and me going motor grip, I just crushed him. And I was like, all right, well, maybe this is what I have to do the rest of the year is go on a knee with these new rules with no set call. Yeah. And it worked out for me. Uh, I ended up having a good year. Um, not quite as good as my junior year stand-up, but I was like, okay, so I can do both now. So yes. when I got to the MLL, um, I went back and forth between both depending on who I went against. Because the MLL used to be crazy FIL face-off rules where – if you're a college guy, being able to get used to those rules within a few games was impossible because it was so different. Really? Um, but it, but being able to stand up and go on a knee helped me a lot there through yeah. my rookie year. And that's that's what I do now. I, I do both. Well, and we're seeing that. I mean, you know, when Maryland, uh, you know, played Denver and Baptiste was a junior, I believe, and they were, he was having his best year, you know, one of his maybe his best year, and all of a sudden they go stand up, they start raking, they start throwing different stuff at them, and then all, yeah. and all of a sudden you know, it's a change-up. It's worth it, right? 100%. And I tell kids, even if you, even if you believe that you're, the, you're God's gift 
and you don't have to stand up, I just want you to remember that there were games where Trevor had to stand up. There have been games where TD has to stand up. Yep. Everyone at some point is going to meet an opportunity where they need to stand up and it's yep. going to make their life better. So if you're going to fight me now as a seventh grader, just remember that you're not better than those guys. Um, and so everyone's got to learn how to do it at some point because it's a huge advantage to do both. Yeah, no question. So um, your part of your journey was, you know, you, you, you referenced this. You got really tight with your strength coach and, 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 and picked your major around that. Talk, talk to us a little bit about how – and you referenced, you know, studying the biomechanics of face-offs. How did becoming a strength coach and, and going down that path – you know, impact you as a person and as an athlete and, and as a businessman. It changed the way I look at things. Um, being working under Brad and looking at the body biomechanically, um, and then becoming, I, I got my USAW certification. So I became an Olympic uh, level strength coach and everything is biomechanics. If you're going to do a power clean or you're going to do a snatch, um, your mechanics, your biomechanics, when they're on, um, that's what makes the lift easier. It's not like doing a curl where if you cheat and bend your knees, it makes it easier. If your technique is off in Olympic lifts, it makes it much harder. So that's what I got used to is studying my athletes that I was coaching, breaking things down video wise with them, showing them the lines, showing them exactly what was moving the levers and all that stuff. And it never dawned on me that face-offs would be the easiest, best thing to do with this from the yeah. lacrosse perspective, because it's the only 100% consistent position in, in, in the sport, right? You might catch, shoot, throw, run on different angles. Yep. Face-offs are always done on the exact same angle to the right of your body. So with something that consistent, if you apply biomechanics to it, it becomes a simple calculus. Um, and that's, that's exactly what I did uh, in 2011. So cool. And it's also, you know, I've always, you know uh, – thought about biomechanics and a lot of people talk about it with shooting and things like this. Uh, but the thing with shooting is that there's this whole, and dodging for that matter, there's deception involved. And I know that there might be a little bit of deception or anti-deception with your, with the way you line up in the case that you want to do some different moves and you don't want to show your hand. But for the most part though, you know, it's it like you said. It's this cons this consistent movement, and with everything else, the biomechanics don't necessarily apply a hundred percent because you might do something that isn't actually going to have you throw it harder because you're going to be like looking low and throwing it high or whatever, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 really it is fascinating how how perfectly it lines up for the sport. Yeah, and now with the new rules with the ball being higher placement, um, it has added more of the chess game back, which is great. Yeah. Um, and there is some deception that you can play. I think the one-step rule, having to pop the ball out of the back of your stick, are all great for the sport, and it's great yeah. for the position. Um, I've always been someone where when they change the rules, I look at how this can make things a little bit more fun. Um, I don't pout and whine and complain on social media about it. I just look at it as an opportunity for us to see something different and, and, and add to it. The one thing that will always be the same is we're going to the right. The biomechanics will be there, but there's always little tweaks, right? Like, for a long time when the ball was close to the throat, we were 80% left-hand punch. That's how you had to face off if you wanted to be dominant. Now, with the ball higher on the stick, we've almost completely – there's opposite ratios. A lot of it's right-hand now. Um, so, you know, the requirement to get the, their helmet over the ball is harder now to try to come down the line a little bit. Um, but, like you said, now we can stand up, so that throws a whole different wrench into it. You can come under the ball. You can go over the ball. Um, so I love where we're at right now with it. With, with, with one or two more tweaks just to make it more black and white rules-wise, I think we've got, you know, a perfect situation. Yeah, so the, all these new rules are just an opportunity to get to be better than other people it's a, 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 on the field and, you know, in business. And yeah. With all the, you know, I mean, I loved, for example, we were doing our uh, webinar a couple of weeks ago and you talked about, you know, with the one step, I, I, I think it was the Towson kid <clears throat> took too many steps and, and instead of cranking his stick in between his legs before he jumped his feet one time. Mm -hmm. and those little details are the things that you're able to figure out with new rules, and it's got to be really fun and fascinating. It is. It's always cool. Like, you know, any, I've always said it, the best teachers are the best students, right? Uh, so if you're constantly trying to learn, yeah. and even from the kids that you coach, you know, I, I saw my stats jump not just because of the biomechanics, but also from teaching kids. Um, they'll do, I'll see a kid do something and I'll be like, why are you doing that? And they'll say, well, this happens and this happens. And maybe it's because of the type of head he's using. 
against another type of head and the way it bends that I never thought about before. Yeah. And then I can add that to what I'm doing. Um, so I'm always looking out for, for new, interesting things that are always moving. I mean, this sport is moving so fast, you know, with the rule changes, not just for face-offs, but overall with the shot clock and all that stuff. So, um, you know, in the MLL, for instance, you're allowed to put two face you're allowed to put two wings on one side. Yeah. You know, it's a completely different dynamic to everything. So yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. That is one uh, funny story uh, that I want to share. That's going to be a segue into the next topic is, and I think I shared this with you. Um, Jeff Snyder was uh, played for me at Denver and really wasn't a face-off guy before he got to Denver. And um, I did, I did fly back in the day, my buddy Andy Towers out to teach him face-offs, but I went to the, Adder I went to the Empire State Games back when the Empire State Games was the, you know, that and 205 were the two best things you could go watch to find players. And the Adirondack team had a deaf face-off guy. And it's like, well, how could you be a deaf face-off guy? Well, because he looked over his shoulder at the official. And at that time, they had the hand coming down. And I was like, wow, that's insane because there's no question that when I, I, I've blown a lot of face-offs as a coach, when you pull your hand down, you blow the whistle slightly after your hand starts coming down. And uh, next thing you know, I tell my two face-off guys, Jeff Snyder and this guy, Scott Davidson. Scott Davidson was a nice face-off guy. I don't know. You may have gone against him. He was probably about your age. Good kid from Denver. But he had, he had faced off his whole life, and, and Snyder really had it. Snyder started looking at the official's hand and literally started dominating Scotty. Scotty was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. So uh, all of a sudden, Jeff starts dominating, and then they change the rules. So it's kind of funny the way, you know, there's, like, opportunities to use rules in your favor opportunity to uh to you know and also how and also how when guys start to adapt to rules how the rules can then change right yeah. So, yeah. like you said they used to pull this down and then they realized guys were kind of anticipating and rolling a bit so they take it out yeah yeah pretty funny so that's the segue into the next thing i want to hear you talk about and you've referenced it a little bit but i'd love to hear you talk about your opinion on the best face-off guys, you know, that, that is going back as far as you want or can and what you kind of uh, – how would you classify them and, and what did you sort of learn from them? I can only go based on how long I've been playing. Um, okay. But I will say the first person I ever noticed was uh, Chris Searcy um, at Cuse. Uh, back then, the only time you could watch college lacrosse was on ESPN2 on, yeah. during the semifinals. And I saw him playing for – uh, Cuse and he just he won a face off forward, took it down and, and scored. And I was like, oh god, that's cool. Like I want to do that. <laughs> um, and then you know you heard stories about him like putting his uh, heads in ice during games and like you know hearing like I tried all that stuff too. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I met I actually met Justin Barry um, on my recruiting visit at uh, uh, Towson. <clears throat> and then um, like I said, Andy Towers was the first time I listened to instruction. Uh, yeah. via his video at the time. And then Paul Canabine was kind of my hero. <clears throat> um, just watching how dominant he was, consistent he was. I, I had no idea how he was doing. I tried to emulate what he was doing. Um, facing off against him my rookie year. Um, maybe it was, my, it was my second year, actually. Uh, with Rochester was unbelievable. Like, I was kind of a deer in headlights the whole time. I couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that generation, those were the guys. Um, that middle generation was kind of like Pete Vlahakis, Andy Corno, Chris Eck. Um, I think Andy Corno, we had talked about, I think he's the most underrated faceoff guy of all time. People have no idea how insanely dominant he was. Um, Pete Vlahakis was a monster in college. Um, and then for a short time in the MLL, he was unbeatable too. And then um, Anthony Kelly and I had a whole bunch of wars. Of course, Jeff and I would play three times a year in the MLL, and then we played at the international level. And then you have the, the, the next generation, um, you know, John, John Ardella, Fowler, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, uh, Trevor coming in now, TD, Gerard Arceri. So I've been able to play against and see a whole bunch of different generations of face-off guys, which is incredibly cool. The fact that I've gotten a face-off against Paul Canabine and TD Erlen is awesome. Yeah, that is. It's pretty sick. Um, so – The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. 
To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com. Now, um, let's, let's transition a little bit. You're talking about some of the best guys you know, now. Give us a little, a little opinion on some of the best face-off guys in Division One lacrosse um, going on in, for 2019. Yeah, so, I mean, you have, uh, you know, obviously TD, until proven otherwise, is number one. Gerard Arceri is number two. Alex Woodall is there as well. Um, I think the, the Big Ten itself is incredibly loaded. Uh, you know, you got Kyle Prouty. It's his time now at Hopkins. Justin Inacio and um, uh, Feliziani at, at Ohio State. Um, <clears throat> you know, Rutgers has, you know, I don't, I, they got to figure it out a little bit if they're going to hang uh, at that position in the Big Ten. Um, and then, you know, you also have the ACC, which has an influx of insanely young guys. Uh, uh, Tucci at North Carolina. Jordan Ginder is going to be a world beater eventually, but Brian Smith right there right now is doing incredible. Brian Smith was not a faceoff guy in high school. Uh, he was just a, an insanely talented midfielder, and he showed up and started doing draw days with us. And he's con- if you would see what he looked like his first day at a draw day compared to what he looks like now going like 14 for 16 or whatever he did yesterday uh, on Saturday, uh, it would blow your mind. So there's a lot of talent out there right now. Um, and it's really cool to watch. And, and this 2019 class coming in next year is preposterous. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, also, you know, you look at Maryland, Justin Shockey and Austin Heddingson as a double header. I mean, yeah, it's great. It's unreal. And that's a perfect segue into the Faceoff Academy. So give us a little rundown on, on when you kind of kick that thing off um, as a business and, and how you've kind of evolved it and the way you sort of systematize stuff. So at, back in the day, inside lacrosse forums were like where it was at. So guys like myself started getting on the forums because I wanted to interact with fans. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. That was not a thing that was prevalent back then, but I wanted to do more of it. Um, and some kid started a thread. I don't know who it was, started a thread about me. And I would come on like once in a while and just talk to the fans. So I became someone who was on there daily talking to fans, answering questions, and the thread kind of blew up. And then I noticed this guy from RIT, this kid was posting all these little like, you know, how-to videos. And I remember talking to him, and it's Jerry Raganese, and he reached out to me about training with him. So he came to New York city um, before his senior year, we trained together in like a gym. Cause at the time I was just a strength coach and um, he went on and had a good year. Uh, I remember making some calls on his behalf, hoping that someone would notice him and get him picked up. He went played for Rochester and we became really good friends. Um, and I remember one year just talking to him like, Hey man, like during the summer, all of my clients kind of leave and go on vacation. So as a strength coach, your, your finances dip. And I was kind of like, would you like to do some face-off clinics with me? Like maybe we can do something. Maybe we can make a website. Like I noticed the inside lacrosse forums are packed with people. Everyone's always asking the same questions about face-offs. So why don't we create like a hub for face-off guys? And we'll make it basically a forum, a website forum that's just dedicated to face-off guys. Um, you know, we didn't know what to call it, but that's what we wanted to do. So he was like, yeah, maybe we can do that. Maybe we can run some clinics. Um, at the time, people were running clinics all over the country doing random things. So, you know, you would go as a guy who's in his 20s and, you know, hook, hook up somebody for, you know, yeah, I'll come work your clinic for a couple hundred bucks and do whatever. Yep. Um, so it was hard for us to get on the same page. And plus, he was running pro athletics. Um, so then one day they did this event for somebody, um, somebody who ended up screwing people out of a ton of money. And Chris and Jerry both texted me afterwards. I didn't know Chris that well. And they were both like, let's run our own clinics. This has gotten out of hand. Like this, this dude just scumbagged like 100 kids. I don't want to be part of this anymore. Let's do our own thing. So we had a meeting and we decided that we weren't going to, we were going to do a website, but it wasn't going to be a forum website because Jerry explained to me how insanely tough that would have been. Yeah. Um, but he did say, let's run like a series of clinics in the summer. We'll do like six of them and we'll just do them in different places. And you know, we can make a couple bucks, we can have fun and travel, and that'll be good. So we decided to go to Delray Beach, Florida. Um, Andrew Bolger actually hosted us. And we decided to go down and do a face-off academy. The first day was a three-hour clinic for youth, and then up followed back-to-back by a three-hour clinic for high school kids. And we went down there, and it was packed. And we had a great time. It was a long day, but we came home. 
And we got destroyed with emails from people like, when are you coming back? Or are you going to do it here? Can you do it here? Can you do it there? Um, you know, the, the most prevalent thing we were getting, obviously, was, wow, no one's ever taught a clinic without talking about cheating before. Um, so we're like, sure. So we scheduled more. And then we just scheduled it. And then we started scheduling them in the fall. Next thing we knew, we were running a business 24-7, helping kids with recruiting. Um, and I ended up selling my strength training business and going full-time with FOA. And uh, obviously, the rest is history. But the a whole idea was to do something during the summer that was fun, yeah. that was better for people than the old school way of kind of just teaching cheating and scumbag, scumbagging people out of their money. <laughs> you really did an amazing job on social media, you know, uh, creating a presence, uh, creating a digital presence. What, you know, what, what can you share about what you've learned and, and, and kind of how you got into that? Did you, did you study that business a little bit as far as learning how to build, you know, build your profile and build your personal brand and, you know, leverage YouTube, Instagram, and all these other for, uh, platforms? Yeah. You know, what's funny is, um, I never really thought about it. Uh, I had gotten off of Facebook in like whatever year, uh, it was the, uh, McCain versus Obama, uh, uh presidential, um, run just because, uh, everyone every four years becomes a, a superior pundit. Um, with incredible knowledge to share about politics. Uh, so I decided that Facebook wasn't for me anymore. Um, and I had no interest in Twitter, or Instagram. And then when I got real serious with my strength training company, I was like, social media is a thing that if you avoid it, you're an idiot. Like, you have to have a presence now. So I started an Instagram, I started a, a, a WordPress blog, um, and it really was paying off for my strength training business. Um, and then, uh, I just started transitioning into the face-off stuff naturally. It's interesting. I say the same thing about face-offs, you know, biomechanics, all that stuff. But the same thing goes for anything else. Experience trumps all, right? So I learned as I went with Instagram. Um, I never really thought that uh, it was going to be a full-time business. Um, so I just thought that, you know, doing stuff, posting it on Instagram and, you know, kind of having an idea of how things worked was fine. What I noticed was you learn things as you go, right? Like school year, don't post after 9 a.m. Kids are in school, right? <laughs> you know, it, uh, you know, don't post, uh, you know, if there's a huge event like the Super Bowl, post because every kid is sitting on his couch watching that and looking at his Instagram. Um, don't just market towards kids market towards parents, market towards, you know, other people. Don't just post face-off things 24-7. People get bored. Um, so I've learned naturally to figure this stuff out. And, you know, when someone asked me, like I had somebody that I coach now who's going to be playing the ML this year, he was saying, hey, how do I get the most followers on Instagram? Like, if that was an easy answer, then everyone would have 8 million followers on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you have to have a purpose. You have to have, you know, I was like, the reason – you know, these meme pages are so, are so big. It's because someone sees something funny, sends it to their group chat, the entire group chat gets it, sends it to their other group chat and it expands like that. So if you want something that'll be interesting to a, if you post something that's interesting to a wide viewer base, more people will share it. Um, you know, I've kind of hit, uh, I've kind of hit my maximum potential as far as face off guys that I'm going to reach that are going to follow me. Yeah. So, you know, Six, there's, there's, you know, you got 64,000 followers. Mo like you get to a certain point where you've tapped out the face off market. You got to go wider than that. Yeah. Um, and that's what I try to do now because I feel like I have more to give than that. Um, I got people that follow me strictly because they think videos of my son are hilarious. I got yeah. people who follow me yeah. uh, strictly because of my, my content on YouTube and my strength training stuff. So yeah, I've learned as I've gone, yeah. but I'm like, like face offs. I'm constantly trying to figure out more stuff. Yeah. And you do a great job and you're, you're very, um, you're an open book, you know, and I think that being able to provide value for people is the other piece. You know, if you have a combination of val value and passion for what you're doing, no matter what it is, you know, it's pretty special. And I think you've really done an awesome Thank job. With that. So, all right, next question for you. Um, what is your advice for high school or youth coaches as it relates to their face-off guys, developing them as players, developing them as face-off guys? I mean, obviously you're going to say you probably need to get some elite instruction, but these, these coaches do have their face-off guys at practice and yeah. they've got it every day. And there's a varying levels of, of ability and, and things that they have to work on. 
So what's your uh, advice to these coaches as far as what to do and how to integrate them and how much to worry about? So there, it's not a simple answer, obviously, uh, yeah. because it all depends on what you got on your roster. If you have no definitive starting guy, uh, maybe you had a guy who graduated last year who was just good on his own, and you had a sophomore and a couple freshmen, and you have no clue where to start, that's different than I have an elite guy who's just trying to, like, get a little better against this one guy on our roster. Right. Um, but what I can say is what I noticed, um, a lot of schools had to choose two paths after Ohio State versus Maryland, that championship game. There wasn't, it wasn't by accident that Maryland was in the final with Chris Mattis as their faceoff coach and yeah. Corey Balkin was a faceoff coach for Ohio State. Two guys, a definitive minority in, in lacrosse, that two guys on your staff that actually knew exactly what to do, not just from a technique perspective, but in-game adjustment. Yeah. Um, and that's what the chess match was that year. After that championship game, people were freaking out, calling like, I need a face-off coach. You know a guy who's looking to be a volunteer assistant. My answer was always the same, and it always will be the same. Don't freak out and just go hire a guy who faced off at some point. That's the worst thing you can do. You know, oh, I hired this guy. He faced off at Delaware one year. That's great, man. What's his name? Was he good? Did he face off in 2001? Because that doesn't correlate at all to 2019. Like, you're much better, and I've always said this, we will work for, with colleges for free. And yes, like you need elite level instruction on the side, all that stuff. But I, if you get a coach who's a hungry young assistant that wants to come on as a volunteer assistant and eventually be a coach at, at the Division One level, if you bring on a guy who's completely green, he has no idea what he's doing, and he comes and works with me for two days, I can give him the ins and outs, the basics of what to do with his players. He can go straight back and he can start working. And he can call me on a weekly basis and I will continue to help him. And I've done that with a bunch of assistants all over the country. That always works out better. Um, and, and look, there, to be frank, there's two reasons. One, there's guys out there who literally just hate my guts, right? So you bring in an assistant who hates Greg Gerenlian or the Faceoff Academy. I'm going to coach things differently because I just hate those guys. Whether it's at a detriment for these kids or not, I hate those guys. And we have seen that a bunch, okay? Uh, and it never works out good for those guys. Uh, the other way is you come in and you say, look, I know you worked with them, but, like, this is what worked for me. Okay, well, now we're getting wires crossed. And it's not like uh, the coach calls me and said, hey, I know you do this with him, but I do this. What do you think of that? We get calls like that sometimes, and it works out great because then we could compare notes. Some guys are just like, look, I don't care what you did. Um, the problem is, is you recruited these kids because they were studs. And you liked what they did in high school. Then you get them on campus. You try to change them just because of who they worked with. Uh, and now you're trying to completely change what they do, and it's not going to work. Um, so we have just found that the guys who are green that want to learn the system and don't want to argue with biomechanics, but, you know, they, it works out great. Because then our what never happened in college for a long time was a face-off guy would get to college and continue to, to rise towards his potential. They would get to college and they would be like, this is where I'm at, right? Clamp in the corner by yourself for an hour while we do man up. And yeah. then they would do here or go down. Um, and we are seeing guys continue to get better now. Gerard Arceri has benefited greatly from Coach Hogan at Penn State. Coach Hogan wasn't a face-off guy. Yeah. Coach Hogan loves to learn about face-offs, though. Yeah. And Gerard came in his freshman year, uh, played well, had a couple tough games. John came in his sophomore year, and Gerard has learned a ton. And, and that's a pure example of a guy learning as a hungry coach. John is now, in my opinion, one of the better face-off coaches at, in the college level. Now, as, as high school goes, um, you, I tell guys, the first thing you can do is give me a phone call, and we can go over your wing clip. We might not be able to correct the kid spring right now, right? When I'm talking to coaches now, I'm like, we're not going to be able to overhaul if your kid's stance, but I can at least tell you strategically exactly where to put your wings to make sure you never give up a fast-break goal. That's an easy thing to, to delete from worrying about during a game. That's, that's huge. Yeah. Um, so at the very least, we can do that. And we can also give you guys, like, if you have athletic wings, but a so-so face-off guy, let's put them in position where they can make a huge impact. Um, then, uh, after you have that figured out, let's now, we'll give you the routine. I can go over it with you online. But just add them into whatever you do. If you're doing six-on-six, six, just start it with a face-off. Yeah. Because the problem that I'm seeing all the time is 
face-off guys feel ostracized all the time. And not in a like, oh, woe is me, we're lonely. But uh, we're not a functioning piece, a piece of the puzzle for you. So as a face-off guy, you sit by yourself a lot. Then in the game, you have to win these face-offs. But a face-off is three-on-three. Three. Right. Then you have the rotational component of transition, right? And then yeah. something on and off. If you're not doing that every day in practice, that's not going to be a well-oiled machine for you. You're missing out on a huge opportunity. Um, and if you don't do it, you're also causing a huge detriment to your team because there are teams out there that work on it, and they're going to punish you. Um, so those are things that I think you can easily do. Add face-offs and the transition portion of it into your practices and then work on your wing play and get that solidified. And then work with us. Call us. We have seven FOA coaches. We will work with you and help you with notes and help your guys. And then the offseason, send them to us. We can completely revamp them and send them back to you ready to roll. Yeah, huge. And also you mentioned, you know, that yourself, you were on man up and the face-off guy. So, you know, how about let develop your face-off guys as great lacrosse players also? 100%. Let them be part of practice. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, you know, I say it all the time. There is no lonelier position in the game of lacrosse than a face-off guy who's lost three in a row. Because you are by yourself so much. And then when you win or lose, like if you lose three in a row, especially at the college level, let's be real, there's guys behind you. So even your own fellow face-off guys, you lose the three in a row and you're the starter, you come off, you're like, these guys might be happy I'm losing three in a row. Like they, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, it really plays with your psyche because there's, it's not like uh, on attack where ball goes out of bounds um, and you, you, know, you throw it out of bounds by accident or whatever, you toss it, okay, whatever. No one remembers that. Right. You ride hard, you're right back in the game, and then maybe we get the ball on offense a few seconds later. Face-offs, you lose a face-off. That's the only statistic that matters that anyone ever pays attention to. And then you have to wait a few minutes before the next face-off. So you have to sit there mentally and either deal with the fact that you lost a face-off or that, like, and especially if you lose a couple in a row and your team gets scored on, Right. And then, you know, you always get the coach. You, you, as you're walking out there, hey, really need this one. <laughs> <laughs> the old yeah, appreciate, I'll stop losing on purpose. <laughs> so I feel like if you make the face-off unit and you make a face-off guy feel like he's the quarterback of a face-off unit, um, yeah. that completely changes the dynamic, not only of your face-offs, not only of that portion of the game, but also the entire locker room. Yeah, it's such great advice. Uh, you mentioned a little bit a minute ago a little bit about recruiting and and that's, that was the next topic on my, on my list of questions and topics. Um, how hard is it to evaluate face-off guys? Look in last year's MLL with Max Adler from Bentley and, and Simeon from Naz and Trevor Baptiste that was not recruited until his spring of his senior year to a Division I program. You know, how, what is your advice to college coaches on recruiting and to parents that are worrying about whether their kid's good enough in eighth or ninth grade? Yeah, so I love the new recruiting rules. They've made my life way better. Uh, I mean, it was insane. Having eighth grade parents like in tears because their kid wasn't recruited yet was like, yeah. that was tough. Um, so now it's a lot easier to evaluate. Uh, you have two schools of thought when you're a college coach. You're either saying, <clears throat> all right, look, the kids are now eligible. I'm going to give them a phone call on September 1. Um, I'm going to go after the best guys I can get. And then if we don't have a guy by November or December, we're going to commit whoever the best guy is. Then you have the other schools that are like, look, you guys are coaching thousands of kids a year. A kid will pop up. If we don't find the, the perfect kid now, we'll find him the summer before his senior year. Like we're not freaking out about it. Uh, on the other flip side of it, you have the high school kids who are still kind of used to, like that 2020 class is still like the last one where kids were recruited when they were in eighth grade. So if you're a 2020 and you're going into your you know, junior year right now about to play and you're not committed, you're losing your mind. Um, so you're trying to get kids to be patient too. It also depends on the school. Like Coach Donowski at Duke, he could totally hang around and wait, right? Yeah. yeah. If you're at, you know, uh, I don't know, anywhere, say Penn State or someone who's not a top four team every single year, you want to get a guy. Yeah. Um, so it's tough. It's a little bit different depending on what school you're at um, and what your success rate is and the history of it and what the rest of your class looks like. Um, what people have to understand is this is a very complicated – recruiting in general is a very complicated 
um, thing because it's not, you know, parents will be like, yeah, we were looking on the rosters and they don't really have a kid the year before Billy. So we're thinking about, you know, narrowing our list down to those schools. So you don't want your kid to have competition. Wow. All right. Well, you've already lost me. Um, and, and the other thing is, well, this, they don't have a kid in his class. So, you know, maybe we'll give them a call. Like they're obviously going to be looking for a face-off guy. No, maybe they have a world beater the year before and they just lost a defender to, you know, some kind of sanction. Maybe he didn't have a good GPA and they lost him. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, maybe they need two attackmen next year. So it's never a very simple equation. What I can tell people is if you're just going to look at talent and you want to study that by itself, if you're, go if you're looking at our system, I can watch a kid take reps in his backyard with a couple friends, and I can tell you pretty much a very good idea if he's top third, middle third, or bottom third of his class. That's easy for me, just based on the biomechanics. You're going to have guys out there that do weird things that work for a little bit. Um, you know, so when you, got, when you see guys come out of a D3 or D2 situation, a lot of times they were guys that were either late bloomers, they didn't have the grades, they wanted to stay closer to home, or they just had this weird thing that worked for them. You know, we had a guy show up in 2015 in the MLL. At the end of the year, he was beating people, and everyone's like, who is this guy? Everything he does is weird and backwards. <clears throat> the next year we figured it out, and everyone started pumping him. And, you know, when you do something that's kind of off, biomechanically, you might throw some people for a loop. The safest thing you can always do is go with a guy who has biomechanics down and great footwork. And then you can't teach hand speed and you can't teach coachability. So if you're a college coach at a prospect camp and you see a kid who has good hand speed and you go over and say, hey, I want you to just try this. And he tries it a bunch of times rather than once and stops. You yeah. know you have a guy who's coachable. So that yeah. means his feeling is high. Right. Those are the easy things right there to learn that I can't coach. I can't teach a kid to want to be coached and I can't teach a kid to already have fast hands. But what I can do is take a sprinter and make him faster um, if he's willing to take it. And, and I think that's the easy thing you can do as a coach. That's why I get so many phone calls. Um, uh, you know, a college coach will call me and say, what do you think of this kid? Well, he's got great hand speed, he's got footwork. And when I tell him to do something, he does it. Boom. There's your guy. Right. Yeah. That's easy. Um, yeah, so that, right. I mean, so. <laughs> it sounds simple. I always felt that, you know, evaluating face-off guys was really, really difficult. Obviously, evaluating athletes in general can be difficult. I mean, look at the NFL. I mean, you guys can't get it right year after year, and they've got older athletes. There's guys who are 22. They're fully developed, you know, and, they, and they're just making mistakes maybe because they have too much information, maybe because they don't have enough. Certainly when you know – you know, some intangibles about coachability and toughness and work ethic, and then you can really pinpoint the biomechanics. I guess it can make a pretty big difference. But have you, you know, without maybe sharing names, how, how on have you been with your predictions as to where guys uh, are, have ended up? You know, you've got enough classes that have probably graduated even that you kind of can look back and be like, yeah, most of these guys, I got it right. A couple of these guys, for whatever reason, didn't maybe, you know, probably more personal. I have found that there's no prediction. Like what I can do is I can predict the kid's mentality, uh, his skill set as a face-off guy, where he came from family-wise, what his mentality is like uh, when he's being coached. So I have a lot of things at my disposal because I see kids every single week year-round and I watch them grow. Yeah. Um, so as far as the skill set and where he's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm pretty dead on and I've been – you know, it's been easy for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a psychic. I just have a lot of opportunity to see it. What I can't predict is, is a kid going to go to a school and be an idiot for his first week and drink and get kicked off the team? Yeah. Right? When that stuff happens, obviously, it literally breaks my heart uh, because I'm fully vested emotionally in these kids. I have that big brother mentality. I've seen them from the time they were in, like, fifth and sixth grade, and then they go to college and they throw it away for something dumb. That always crushes me. Um, but there's nothing you can do about that. There's no, there's no way to predict that. But what you can do is give the coaches the entire list of, this is what I see from my perspective every week since I've known this kid. This is my experience when I tell him how to do something. This is my experience with his parents. Um, those are always the things. Like the coaches, when they hear, yeah, this dad reaches out when he needs something. I give him advice. He listens. His, his kid is a great kid. He listens. He's got a 3.8 GPA. The family's great. 
Um, yeah, that's a home run. Like, there's a kid you want in your locker room. Even if he's not going to be a starter, there's a kid you want in your locker room. But if you're like, yeah, the dad, you know, texts me his kid's stats every single day. Um, he trains with, like, 19 different people. He takes reps six days a week, even though I tell him not to. That's going to be a problem for you. Like, as a coach, you're like, that's a huge red flag. And I'm honest with the parents, and I'm honest with the coaches. And I think that's why both sides come to me with advice. Yeah. Because I'm never going to take a kid who I think doesn't have potential at the D1 level and say, you should go D1. And then kids who do have D1 potential, but I feel like they like a smaller school and would be better off just up here at a smaller school, a D3 school. I tell them that honestly, too. Um, and I think that's the issue that we see with this sport, sports in general, right? Yeah. People got to shoot people straight. And I don't think kids get enough of that. No doubt. So moral of the story is, uh, you know, sign up for the Faceoff Academy if you're an athlete so you can uh, get trained up and get the uh, straight, straight shot from you guys. And if you're a coach, you know, leverage the uh, ex expertise and, and network that you guys have created. So very mm -hmm. cool. All right, last topic. How pumped up are you about the PLL? I'm super excited. Uh, the camaraderie is what I miss the most, taking a year off from the MLL. Um, Having that U.S. Team USA experience really kind of just galvanized the fact that I have enough left in the tank where I still want to play. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I'm excited about the opportunity to show people a more refined face-off rules mechanic. Um, we don't have anything finalized yet, but the presentation that I have, I think, is something that the NCA will be very interested in. Um, and then being on TV. I think the, the sport being on TV – getting people outside of the hardcore lacrosse fan to watch this sport is something that we really need. So people have never been talking about professional lacrosse more than they are now, both the MLL and the PLL. So I think it's great. If you like professional lacrosse or lacrosse in general, you actually get to watch something cool during the summer now, yeah. um, both on a digital platform and on a sports platform. I mean, on a uh, TV platform. So you get twice as much pro lacrosse to watch. Um, and if you're a, a professional lacrosse player, now who plays for the MLL and you finally got your shot, you're going to see more stars in the sport. So we're going to have a whole new list of guys who lead the MLL in points, face-off percentage, ground balls, saves, all that stuff. So uh, it's never been a better time to be a professional lacrosse player. Yeah, awesome stuff. Well, Greg, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Your, um, you know, expertise and, and uh, ability to – explain things is fantastic. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan. Best of luck moving forward and uh, let's keep in touch. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good one, buddy. All right. See ya. The Phil Lacrosse podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13 week online program is designed to teach cutting edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.